Hi there, and welcome to the Oompal.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for episode number 56, it is my pleasure to bring to you a chat with the legendary pipe maker Trevor Talbert. Trevor holds a special, precious place in the history of pipe making, as he has not only influenced a great mini carver, but he has actually also helped an incredible amount of carvers through offering up his own knowledge by way of information sharing in those earlier days of the online world. To say he is an important part of the puzzle is a grand understatement, and I am more than happy to bring you a glimpse into a bit of that pipe history. This podcast was made possible by my friends over at PipesAndCigars.com. I recently purchased a few pipes from PipesAndCigars.com and was not even the least bit surprised at how quickly my package arrived. The experience was, as always with PipesAndCigars.com, a good one. So whatever it is you find yourself lacking for today, maybe a pipe, maybe cigars, maybe a lighter, maybe some tobacco, you will find it over there and you will find incredibly helpful people ready to serve you. Let me know what treasure you found over there at PipesAndCigars.com from my own monstrosity line to Dunhills to artisan pipes you'd normally find only at a show. Whatever it is you're looking for, check out PipesAndCigars.com and don't forget to sign up for their newsletter while you're there. Well, it's 2014, and there are many, many things brewing in the Monstrosity Lab deep beneath the Oom Palace. If you want to follow along and see things as they unfold, follow me on Instagram at OliPS3 and Twitter at Baron Oli. At this moment, there is one last Blaggery Dak pipe available at oompal.com. If you watch this miniseries unfold, you'll remember these as the Black Friday pipes with an accent of not boxwood, not ivory, but a miniature buzzsaw blade. To say this series was close to my heart would be, well, dangerous. Read all about the first Black Friday in that fateful pirate community of Blaggery Dak at oompal.com in the musings area, then grab this last remnant of the first Black Friday while you can. Good luck. The following podcast was recorded on October 9th, 2013. Sit back, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. Online with us today, we have the incomparable American pipe maker, Mr. Trevor Talbert. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, although I think I'm pretty comparable, actually. (laughs) Oh, nonsense. Trevor, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how old you are, a little bit about you and your family, stuff like that. Uh, It's hideously boring. Uh, I'm a typical 47-year-old guy. Uh, I was born in a tiny town in North Carolina called Welcome, of all things. Um, Grew up in a small town and had grandparents who lived on a farm, so I spent a fair chunk of my childhood playing on a farm. Uh, Most of the movies that you see where someone has an idyllic childhood running through fields and and playing in the grass, that was pretty much me. What what was uh, Welcome North Carolina like? I mean, obviously pretty small town up there, and was it uh, mostly a, a certain type of agriculture or what? Uh, well, it wasn't all agricultural. Um, it was just, phew, I couldn't even tell you how many people there were there now. Um, it was small enough that I walked to elementary school. So that, um, 
is about as much as I knew about it. We had a barber shop, we had a Seven Eleven, we had one blinking caution light, um, one school. That was that was that. I, we knew pretty much everyone within about a three mile radius of where we lived, and that was the town. And what kind of farm was that that you grew up on? Well, it was my grandfather's. Um, they were Depression era, and he got through the Depression by growing his own food and feeding himself and feeding uh, his family and kept the farm open and continued working the farm until he was 96. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I've always looked at him as a, as a role model for uh, doing what you enjoy and not looking at work as a thing that you have to stop someday uh, because I talk to other people and they talk about I want to retire at such and such of an age and so forth and I want to, to stop working at this point. And I've never felt that way. What I've always felt is that I want to do something that I enjoy and I want to do it as long as I can keep standing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Makes good sense. Yeah, well, it's it's just, I mean, he was active and, and happy into his 90s. And I got to watch a lot of his other contemporaries that we knew who retired and went home to sit and fish die of heart attacks at, in their 75 years old. And uh, I think having a purpose in your life makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, before we get into your pipes, let's talk about some of your other interests. Tell me about Kentucky Fried Popcorn. <laughs> uh, that is my hobby. Uh, it is strictly fun time for me. I was very much what they're now referring to as the 70s monster kid in the sense that I grew up reading Famous Monsters magazine and lots of old EC horror comics and things like that and um, very much into drive-in horror movies and that sort of thing. And when after we moved back here from France... I suddenly had spare time, which I had never had when we were living in France, and had to come up with something to do with it. So I thought that I would first start a movie review site where I could post editorials and reviews and rants and humorous articles and whatever, anything that I thought about writing, really, um, and put it in one spot. And I then began thinking, how can I differentiate this from the million other movie review sites that are out there? And I started adding in cartoon characters to comment on the various movie reviews that I was doing. And eventually, the cartoon characters evolved into their own webcomic, which have, got, which have their own site as well now. So uh, Kentucky Fried Popcorn is sort of a, a blanket overview for everything that I do that isn't pipes. Gotcha. And um, how often do you contribute to that? Do you, are you on a schedule? or? Unfortunately not. Um, I am terribly behind on both of them right now. Um, I don't think I've updated either of them in probably three or four months at least. Uh, try to keep both of them, both the movie reviews and the webcomic, updated semi-regularly. But... Uh, it's mainly a matter of money and inspiration. Uh, if I'm not having any inspiration, then I work instead. And if I don't have the time, obviously I can't. Um, 
the webcomic comes and goes based on... <laughs> I have this ridiculous repeating cycle with the webcomic of getting burnt out on it, stopping, restarting, getting re-enthused with it, getting burnt out on it, stopping, and rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. uh, each time I start working on it, I'll start working on it very simply and very crudely, and it will be a wonderful amount of fun. I'll sit and do a few pen and ink strips and have a great time with them. And then I'll start wanting to make it look better and better and better because that's just the way that my brain works. And I start adding in color, and I start adding in more professional inking, and I start adding in more panels and more complicated stories. And before I know it, I've gone from something that was fun to do, and I could get done in one evening to something that I'm spending all of my spare time over the course of a two-week period to get one strip done, and then I hate it, and I stop doing it. <laughs> and then a little while goes by, and I restart again. Same thing. Right, right. What what is uh, from the movie reviews? What what would you say is one of your uh, favorite reviews that you've got up there? That that or maybe uh, one of the more memorable ones. Oh man, um, of the ones that I've written myself. Let me have a quick look here. I don't remember. I write them and they go straight out of my head. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people seem to get a kick out of my review of a movie called Super Shark. Uh, a Christmas movie from last year called Santa's Sleigh. <laughs> You've seen that? I have I have not, no. Oh, man. So, so tell me, just a, maybe a, a quick little excerpt or, or a little something about one of those that sticks out in your mind. One of the movies or the reviews? Yeah, um, well, both. Both, the movie and the review. So... Uh, just tell me a little bit. Let's let's go with um, Santa's sleigh. What, first of all, why did you why did you end up choosing to review Santa's sleigh? Oh, because it's a. Uh, I try and do seasonal film reviews, and it was Christmas time. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And what was? Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, about the review that you, that you did. Uh, well, it's an incredibly ridiculous film. It's a black comedy horror. Uh, Santa is actually an evil uh, creature and comes back, gets let off of his contract, which has had him forced to be good for 2,000 years, and is let off of the contract of having to be good, and gets to go berserk, and kicks the movie off by uh, murdering friend Drescher, and then... Is Fran Drescher's in this movie? Yeah, you know it's it's so strange. I was just talking about her just the other day. Um, she's a, a I just love Fran Drescher. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, the Santa is played by a wrestler named Bill Goldberg, who I'm completely oblivious <laughs> to because I've never watched wrestling, but he is in it and he's completely hilarious. Uh, if you remember Jesse Ventura's character from Predator, he basically plays Santa as him. Wow. And it's also got a one of my favorite actors, Robert Culp. He has been a favorite actor of mine ever since I was a child and saw him in the Outer Limits episode, Demon with a Glass Hand. Um, he plays the, the Van Helsing of the film who is trying to stop the evil Santa. Excellent. Excellent. Um, if you had to name a few of your favorite movies of all time, um, could you name just a few of them? Sure. Um, 
I sort of have a, a bipolar list though because I have favorite movies from the sense of movies that are that I think are very good are really excellent movies in terms of quality and then there are movies that are so ridiculously bad that I love them to death because their their entertainment value is high even if I know that they're not good movies uh, I can tell you that my favorite uh, movies in terms of good movies I would say The Haunting 1963, the Robert Wise version. Uh, the Natural with Robert Redford is probably my favorite movie. Local Hero from the mid-80s. Uh, a lot of people have forgotten that one, it seems like. Excalibur, uh, The Thing, John Carpenter's version. The original Halloween, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, Star Wars, just... That's a sampling of... of some of my favorites in terms of good, good movies. Excellent. How about books and comics? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Somerset and Holmes, The Razor's Edge. Uh, those were probably the most influential books that I've read, really. And in terms of comics, Dave McKean's Cages is a graphic novel that I go back to again and again for creative insight. That's uh, how funny. Um, I actually um, collected that years ago. I still have quite a few of them. I think I may be missing uh, one or two here or there. But yeah, I love I love that series. That was hardly anyone else knows about it. It's funny. Uh, I ended up having to go back and buy the collected graphic novel of it because I did not myself have the entire original run. I couldn't find the original run. It was one of those that came out an issue randomly every four to six months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that one is, I can read it again and again and I always seem to get something new out of it. So, yeah, for sure. That's what's wonderful about his work. It's just so wild. So out there and yet, uh, very, very interesting stuff. Um, how about some more comics besides, uh, cages? Uh, well, Watchmen is the obvious one. Um, I was really fond of Frank Miller's Daredevil series, Born Again, which I thought was probably my favorite Frank Miller thing that he's ever written. Um, Garth Ennis's Preacher is just absolutely a blast. Yeah, that's a good one. Probably my, if I had to say what's my favorite comic in terms of fun to read, it would be Garth Ennis's Hitman series from the 90s. Um, it was before Preacher, and it's equally insane, uh, but a lot more humorous. And it is a, just it's a tremendous blast to read. It's basically the kind of thing that I can pick up a random issue of, and always know I'm going to be entertained. I don't know that one. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to look into that. Unfortunately, it hasn't been collected in graphic novel. I think there's only one graphic novel of the series, and it only covers something like the first five issues, and it ran for about 50 issues. Do you still uh, collect comics? No, not really. Um, don't have the space, don't have the time. I read it every once in a while when something passes by me, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, every so often I'll dip into a comic book shop and see what's going on and grab some titles, but um, I don't collect like I used to anymore. Uh, a buddy of mine, whenever he comes to town, we'll hit the comic book shop and 
and uh, maybe grab a scotch and a cigar and hang out for a while, and that's always fun. But besides that, I don't I don't get out to uh, the shop too much anymore. But uh, yeah, I used to hit it all the time. Yeah, that was me too when I was in my twenties. Um, if I would go to a new city, I had to find the comic book stores in the city. I would hit the comic book shop and load up on a, a bag full of stuff that I would wander through the store and collect. But these days, I just I just generally don't. It's sort of like I suppose it's like playing video games. Uh, I used to do tons of video gaming you know, on the computer, but just, I don't know, as the years have gone by, I basically lost interest in it to a large extent. I tend to put my time into, um, well, let me diverge here. At some point, I read something that I thought was very telling, which was, if you want to work as a creative professional, you have to measure how much time you spend creating things yourself versus consuming product that other people have created. And that really stuck with me. And these days, most of the time, uh, if I have two or three hours of spare time to do something with, I will go and make a pipe or I will sit down and draw a comic strip or I will write a story or I will write a review or do something that's creatively productive instead of playing games or reading comics or something because I usually these days want to put my energy more into producing things than consuming things, if you follow. Yeah, yeah, makes good sense. Not to mention it's fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I've interviewed just a, a ton of folks who have pointed to you as an inspiration or, or mentor in, in some way, shape, or form, which in turn makes you one of the linchpins of American pipe making. So um, let's start with pipes in general. How and when did you get into smoking pipes? Uh, it would have been around 1990, I guess, or 91, something like that. Um, I had a good friend, Paul Tatum, who was very into pipes. And he was a big Dunhill collector at the time. And I just got curious about it, basically, um, to see what it was like. And I picked up my first pipe and tobacco at a shop and started enjoying it and have enjoyed it ever since. So uh, Paul was a friend of yours who, who kind of sort of got you into it? Yeah, yeah. And when and how did you get into actually making pipes and, and who were your mentors? Uh, I got into making pipes... A couple of years later, I was at the time doing a lot of uh, part-time illustration work. Uh, I was working a full-time, quote, real job uh, and spending my evenings doing paintings for uh, my own portfolio and for different commercial projects. I was doing illustration work for magazines, short stories, and things like that. And essentially, my life was booked up from end to end. And I had gone into doing the artwork, enjoying it, and had come to the point of really not enjoying it because it was a constant deadline crisis, um, particularly working with publishers. And I got kind of burned out by that. We took off on vacation to a, a beach house for a week. And while I was on vacation, I found a local pipe shop that had a, a, a block pipe kit sitting in their display case. And I thought, eh, I'll try this. 
So I bought the thing and I got myself a Dremel and I sat on the pier by the beach house and made my first pipe with a Dremel over the course of that week for fun. And I enjoyed it a lot. And when I got back home, I decided that I would try making more pipes. I liked, well, I wanted to make pipes that I wasn't finding in the shops. Uh, I wanted something, some styles that were more creative and unusual than what I was typically seeing sitting in display cases. And at the same time, something that would be practical and would be functional because one of my main complaints at the time was that many of the more exotic shapes that I would find were not very well designed to be practical smoking pipes. Um, so basically I started making pipes and half pipes that I wanted that I couldn't find elsewhere. And then that grew into making things for my friends for Christmas presents and things like that, uh, different pipe collecting friends. And that... Hmm. Around that time, I was on America Online, and this was in the days of AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy and Delphi. Um, I started a group on AOL called Pipes and Cigars, and it grew really rapidly. And at some point, I posted there asking if anyone knew anything about making pipes because there was literally nothing online at the time to teach anyone how to do this. Um, it was nothing at all like it is now where you can go to the Pipe Makers Forum and find you know, video explanations and step-by-step -step instruction on virtually every step you could ever want to, to know in making a pipe. Uh, at the time, it was basically a gigantic mystery, and there was no one to teach you. There was no one to explain anything. So I posted on AOL and said, does anyone know anything about making pipes? And someone wrote to me and said, yes, I know an American pipe maker named Paul Perry. And he is retired now, but he made pipes professionally his entire life. I'll put you in touch with him. So... Paul was an incredibly nice guy, and indeed he had been a pipe maker his entire life. Uh, I wrote to him and sent him a pile of Polaroids that I had taken of the pipes that I'd making so far and said, you know, here's what I'm doing. Um, can you help me? Can you give me advice both in terms of, of process and function and also style? And he wrote back and said that he was pleased that he, he liked the, the pictures that I had sent him and thought that, that I had promised, I guess, and began sending me instructions in these amazing uh, yellow uh, lined paper, those long yellow sheets from, from notepads that he would completely cover in handwritten instructions. Wow. diagrams. <laughs> That's great. I would, yeah, I would have these, these fat envelopes turned up in the mail, and they would be yellow paper rolled up and rolled up and rolled up and, and folded and crammed into the envelope, covered in instructions on scrawl of little pictures and drawings and things of how to drill pipes and how to make a pipe. That's great. Yeah, that was basically how I got started. Wow, how cool. So did you ever get to meet 
Paul? Never have in real life. Uh, we've corresponded for a number of years, and I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, the last I heard from him after we moved to France, he sent me a congratulations letter and a pipe that he had carved while sitting on the beach in Hawaii uh, in his retirement and said that he thought I might like it and sent it to me as a good luck present. That's great. Yeah. So what what year was it that you were on vacation and uh, making that pipe over that that week's time? I do not know. Uh, I would say 95, maybe, 94. And from that point, about how long would you say it was before you realized that pipe making for you was something more than a hobby? Uh, well, that would have been from then until I won the Pipes and Tobacco's Magazine Carbon Contest. And when was that? That was, I believe, in 97. You'd have to ask Chuck Stanion or some of those guys. Um, it was either 97 or 98. I'm not sure, but I think it was 97. I'll have I was to... just saying 97 from the background. She has a better memory than I do. <laughs> I'll have to pull that edition out. I know I've got it. I just have to pull it back up again. Um, and tell me about uh, what was that like, first of all? I'm, I'm sure that was quite an experience for you. It was completely unexpected and bizarre. Um, they announced that they were having a carving contest, and I essentially figured, what the hell, I'll enter something, and expected absolutely nothing from it. Uh, I went out in my garage and made the entry pipe, and for perspective, my workshop at the time was a corner of my garage that was a couple of two-by-fours that I had nailed together and put on a pair of saw horses, and I had a bench grinder motor mounted on there that I would stick sanding sandpaper discs to the sides of for shaping. Uh, and I had a Dremel and that was the entire extent of my pipe making equipment. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty bare bones. <laughs> yeah. So I went out and I made the, the first pipe for the, the pipe for the contest. And, um, I took a few pictures of a couple of the other pipes that I had made at the time and sent them all in and completely forgot about it. I basically, it was, I assumed that I would never hear anything back from it. And some time later, Chuck called me and said that they had picked mine to go into the finals. And I thought, oh, well, that's nice. How unexpected. And then another month or two months went by, and he called me back and said that I had won the contest. Uh, they'd taken my entry to the New York Pipe Show and that it had won both the juried um, the juried contest and the floor write-in votes which was a sort of God, was a complete surprise um, and quite nice obviously. yeah that's that's fantastic for sure oh um, and anyway that was that the magazine article came out and suddenly people began writing to me wanting to order pipes from me. And I was working full-time at the time. And I started doing pipes for people's orders. And I thought, well, I'll try a little bit of direct sales. So I set up a website. And at the time, 
as far as I know, uh, and you would have to get an internet pipe historian to double check this, but as far as I know, the only two guys that predate me online are Mark Tinsky and Lee Van Ark. Um, they both had websites set up to sell their pipes direct before I did. And maybe Paul Bonacquisti. I'm not sure when, when he came in. Um, but I set up my own site for direct sales and began getting buried in work in a very short time. Uh, it became just like it was when I was doing illustration work, which is that I would go and work eight hours a day and I would come home and eat and work until I was ready for bed and work all weekend doing pipe work. Wow. Yeah. And that was the point where I said, okay, I'm not going to repeat the same thing that I did with illustration, which is to say, I'm not going to let this drag on long enough to burn out on it. Yeah. I, I like making pipes. I would like to do this. And I quit my full-time job and went, became a full-time pipe maker and have been ever since. That's fantastic. At what point did you decide to move to France? And tell me a little bit about that experience. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. There goes the next four hours. <laughs> um, we decided to move in 2001. We heard through the pipe grapevine that French pipe maker Patrice Sabilot, who at the time was the only mortal pipe maker in the world, was going to sell was going to sell his workshop business stock house, etc. Uh, it was a a connected thing. It was a 100-year-old stone house with a giant workshop attached to the side of it and all of his stock and equipment. Wow. And he was looking for someone else who would actually be able to move there and continue the business because Morta in France could only be obtained from within the Bruyere Parkland. Mm -hmm. It's a, a marshland in western France in the region of Britannia and the technicality of it is such that you have to actually live within the bounds of the parkland in order to harvest the products of the parkland. So if you wanted to make mortar pipes, you had to live within the Briere in France. Wow. Yeah, this was before there were online vendors selling mortar. Uh, this is this has been extremely strange for me because when I started doing this, I was the only person in the world making water pipes and spent probably three years, three to five years, fighting the uphill acceptance curve of convincing the market that mortar pipes could be good smokers and that this strange material was, was worthwhile and interesting. And then it exploded and other pipe makers began buying it and using it and other sources of mortar appeared, and when it became a popular material, suddenly there were exotic wood dealers who began offering it in terms of commercially available uh, product. And so there were other places to buy it, and now it's basically a, a fully established um, subset of the pipe market. But at the time, it was just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember hearing that 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 you were the dude that, if you were going to get a mortar pipe or mortar wood, I mean, it was going to have to one way or another come through through Trevor. Yeah, yeah, that was um, 
And it was fun. It was an uphill struggle. Uh, Morta is challenging stuff to work with. I still have a fair amount of stock that I've brought back with me from France. Um, I'm always trying to find other stock uh, that's good quality, but I've had a hard time finding commercially available stock that is as good a quality as some of the stuff that we harvested in France. Um, I think retrospectively I'm discovering that I was badly spoiled by the quality of some of the wood that we had to work with. And it has colored my impression of it, I suppose, to the point that now I'm, I'm iffy a lot of times on some of the mortar supplies that I've, I've tried myself. I've got a box of mortar out in the workshop right now that I can't use for pipes. Um, it came from a commercial vendor and I made my first pipe out of it and put it to some test abuse and it almost immediately began burning. Um, and that's just, it's not something that I'm accustomed to. So I have sort of X'd that out of the supply source. Now, Morta's basically a, a, a type of hardwood that's been waterlogged for X amount of time. Is that Does that sound correct? Yeah. Um, the trees, it, it takes unique circumstances. Uh, the trees have to fall over in an area that's heavily marshy and also has a strong clay. Um, a lot of clay in the, the marsh so that the wood can sink under the water level and sink into the clay and essentially petrify rather than rot. And the biggest problem that you have when you're bringing up water is to sort the, the wood that has actually petrified and is solid and black and completely uh, smoke-worthy, essentially, from the wood that has started to rot, which is softer and, and not anywhere near as good. So how long does it take for that process to happen? I mean, um, for that wood to actually become petrified in that specific kind of situation? Well, in the Bruyere, the, the estimates were that the wood had been petrifying for about four to 5,000 years. Uh, it does vary widely across Europe, though there are a few other places. Uh, there's a supplier in Czechoslovakia, I believe, who's supposed to have some pretty good stock that has a similar situation. Um, but it, it does take thousands of years to get it to the state that you really want it to be in. As far as the stock that, that you work with now and, and Briar, how much more do you tend to use nowadays? Uh, very little. Um, the dual reasons that I don't have all that much stock left, and also the fact that I'm no longer the only guy making mortar pipes. Uh, a lot of my, my, I'm not sure what you would call it, marketing aim, uh, creative aim, wrapped together, is focused on doing what other people are not doing. Mm-hmm. And when more and more pipe makers began making mortar pipes, I began making less and less mortar pipes. Right, right. All right, so for something completely different, you walk into a bar, you've already eaten supper for the night. What beverage do you order? Beer. What other beverage is there? What? <laughs> I like you, Trevor. What uh, What kind of beer? Ah. Uh. 
Well, I just picked up a four pack of something called Dragon's Milk Stout that I'm particularly fond of. Mm, I, um, like, I like milk stouts. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, there's a, a brewery here in North Carolina called Duck Rabbit that call themselves the Dark Beer Specialists, and I pretty much love everything they produce. Duck Rabbit Milk Stout is phenomenally good stuff. Um, they've got Rabid Duck Russian Imperial Stout, which is incredibly good. Hard to find. Um, essentially, if you put a stout or a porter in front of me, I'll probably like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'm a big fan, so... Excellent. Well, tell me about the uh, Linea Britannia. Did I say that? Pr- okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Tell me about that line of pipes and how you started working with those and how that's going. Um, that is an inheritance from the pipe maker, the French pipe maker that we bought the business from. Um, Patrice Sabulo, he... When he got started in the business, he spent a great deal of time in Saint-Claude in France, the pipe-making capital, and got to know a lot of the companies down there. And he purchased a lot of equipment and stock from them. Uh, the amount of stock that is lying around in Saint-Claude is phenomenal. Um, from companies that have gone out of business over the course of decades. And what Patrice had done was to buy pipe-making equipment, machinery, from defunct factories and bring it back to Brittany to install in his own workshop. And he also bought stock when he could find it. And a lot of the stock that he bought was World War II, immediately post-World War II era, uh, turned stumbles in a wide variety of different shapes. About 20,000 of them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he had a stone outbuilding, a garage, which was basically more of a barn, really, which was completely full of these things. And when I say full, I mean from the floor to the ceiling, and the floor was covered. Uh, there were mountains of burlap bags that were the size of a 55-gallon drum that would be completely filled with pipe stumbles that had just been sitting uh, for 40 years or more. Uh, he was able to buy all of this stuff very inexpensively, and I bought all of this stuff from him when he quit the pipe business. Uh, so I ended up with a tremendous pile of very old stumbles, which consistently smoked really well, um, and had to figure out what to do with them. One of the things that has concerned me over the course, especially over the last 10 years, is that I worry about the pipe hobby uh, closing itself off into a a sort of a high-grade wonderland, where there's... Less, there are less interesting pipes available for people just getting into the hobby. Uh, there are plenty of pipe makers who are making $1,000 pipes now, but there are not a lot of pipe makers who are making $100 pipes that 
the guy who has started smoking a pipe can afford. Uh, he's he started. He's found out that he likes smoking pipes and he wants something better than a grave or whatever it was that he got started with. He wants something more interesting than a factory pipe, but he can't afford to spend four or five hundred dollars on what is essentially the entry level of handmade artisan pipes. Uh, I was concerned that there wasn't really anything to serve this guy in the market. And I really wanted to make Linear Britannia um, using all of those stumbles, turn it into an artisan assembled and finished uh, high quality pipe that a a guy who does not shop in the $500 price range would be able to buy, afford, and would provide him with a really good quality pipe for a price that he could handle. I love that idea. It's it's not it's not too unlike the uh, the zombie line that I'm working with right now, and I just it's it's just a wonderful thing to be able to, for for you to come out with this line that that is incredibly reasonably priced and at the same time the quality's there they're beautiful they're interesting too they're not they're not um they're not just something that that is is plain jane they're they're gorgeous pipes and the way that uh you you're able to put those out there at at such an a reasonable cost is is really awesome well, having the shapes basically made for me already helps. Uh, we tweak them a lot and do a lot of fairly sophisticated finishes on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you can regularly find linear Britannias with the same sort of staining setups that you might not find on another pipe under seven or eight hundred dollars. Um, and they're just they're fun to make. Uh, it's a whole different kind of fun, and I don't. I don't intend for this to sound as if I'm demeaning them. Um, they're reliable accomplishment. Uh, if you've worked in creative fields, you know what it's like to get working on a project that takes forever and ever and feels like it's never going to end. And you start doubting whether it's going to come out okay and wondering if you've wasted your time while you're invested in it and so oh, yeah. on and so forth. For sure. Uh, working with Linear Britannias is a very nice way to short-circuit this. Right. Uh, it's a matter of knowing my own brain process well enough that I can be struggling with a Halloween pipe that I know is going to take me three weeks to finish. And I don't know if it's going to come out or not. I will be worrying that I will not get it right, that I will mess it up somehow. The briar will have a major flaw in it that won't turn up until I put two weeks of work into it, whatever. Uh, that will have a whole lot of stress riding on it. But I can go out into the workshop and make two or three linear Britannias, and in the course of a day, I can have something that I can look at and say is finished. Uh, it can be finished reliably. I know what I'll get. I know what will come out of it. I know at the end of it, I'll have a very nice pipe that someone will buy and someone will be happy with. And it's also wonderful just from a business perspective because uh, I was I told Mike Lunder at some point in the past that Linear Britannias are grocery money uh, for they enable me to 
make $2,000 pipes because if I have a steady stream of $150 pipes selling that are reliably easy to make that I can put on site and sell reliably, that enables me to have the creative free time and the financial freedom to do more complicated and risky work in other areas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking of your Halloween pipes, um, you're probably most well-known for those, the Halloween and Goblin pipes. Tell me about your fascination with this look or feel. Uh, well, um, that got started. <laughs> One of the themes that we're going to keep coming back to again and again is how quickly I get bored and um, burn out on things. Um, it's a factor of my life that I'm busy doing comic strips and magazine articles and movie reviews and short stories, um, three different lines of pipes for one guy, but it's a way for me to keep from getting bored with one particular thing, which I know I would if I was doing the same thing over and over again. Um, when I made the first set of Halloween pipes, I've been working professionally full time for about two years, I suppose, and was beginning to get bored with it. I could feel it um, because I, this was long before Lenny Britannia. Um, basically, you have to make a certain number of billiards and bulldogs in order to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And it has gotten a little frustrating for me to essentially have to, to crank out product in order to keep the, the bills paid. And I decided I wanted to do something that was really different. And I wanted to do something that I, that I didn't see anyone else doing. And so I looked around at the pipe market as it existed in 2000 and didn't see anyone doing anything fantasy oriented. Uh, this was before every company had a Lord of the Rings pipe before the movies came out and that sort of thing. Um, so I decided I would do something that was directly in line with what I liked, which was to say horror movies, horror and dark fantasy. And I made a set of Halloween pipes for the first time. I had no idea if anybody would buy them. Uh, that was a very nerve-wracking period there. Um, I basically sat and made some some wild stuff that I thought looked interesting and functional and unlike other work that I had seen and put it on the market just to see what would happen. And it was a hit. Uh, the first set of Halloween pipes was a hit. It became a yearly thing for me. Um, Looking back, I think that I managed completely by accident to time my pipe-making work and my creative output with um, essentially the aging and maturation of my generation of the Star Wars 70s kids. <laughs> right, right. So does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it actually answers another, another one of my questions, which was, you know, what, what was your style like and how has that changed over the years? But I think, I think you've kind of 
helped me out with that already by, you know, going through the idea that, you know, at first you were making billiards and bulldogs and, and for a, a very certain kind of market that was almost uh, a necessary evil almost. And then eventually you were able to branch out and do some crazy things that you really enjoyed. Yeah. It was tough back then. Um, it's, it's funny now because I, I look around and I see lots of new pipe makers getting into the business and you set up a website and start selling $500 pipes seems to be the thing to do today. And it's so easy. And at the time, a, I caught, and I know some of the other really early pipe makers caught a tremendous amount of flack from the distribution networks of the time. Because when I got started, uh, the way that you were supposed to sell pipes was to find a distributor and sell your pipes to the distributor who would in turn sell them on to retail shops, to brick and mortar shops. Mm-hmm. And if you went direct to the customer, that was really frowned upon. You were anathema to the system. Interesting. And it was pretty obvious to me, even uh, in the latter half of the 90s, that direct sell uh, artisan crafted work was going to be a thing. The setting up your own website and being able to talk directly to your customers rather than sailing through a gallery or a shop or whatever was going to be a big deal in the future. And I'm glad I got in early on that because I had years of getting the business established uh, so that when when the 2000s rolled around and becoming a one-man artisan shop became a popular thing, I already had an established business and an established, established reputation, which was a huge help. Yeah. When you make a pipe that's not a commission, in your eyes, to you, what makes that pipe a success? I, I'm happy with it. Um, hmm. If I can look at it and think that it looks interesting, uh, dynamic, unusual, if it seems to have a personality of its own, and if it is equally functional, I'm really concerned about keeping the pipes functional. Uh, when I was younger and collecting, I saw a lot of pipes. It always seemed to be such a dichotomy. I could either see really nicely simple functional billiards or I could see really unusual exotic looking pipes that had horribly off-center air holes or whatever uh, that just frequently seemed to be not really well designed for smoking. Um, And it's always been a big thing for me to have the two go hand in hand, to have the pipes be as focused on being a good smoking instrument as they are on their style. In some ways, it restricts the amount of stylistic extravagance that I can do, but at the same time, it's it's meant to be used, so it needs to be functional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really liked that, what you said about them having their own kind of uh, personality. That's very interesting. Well, it's a it's a thing. It's it's like a baby. It needs to stand on its own. Yeah, yeah, and and that's not uh you know that's not an easy accomplishment, and so um you know being able to uh, coax that 
out of um, an inanimate object is uh, is a feat, and I think you do that incredibly well. Um, as far as your workload goes, do you do mostly commissions or orders, or or how does how does that flow through your your workshop? I am absolutely terrible at doing commissions. Uh, anyone will tell you that. Uh, I don't work well with commissions. Uh, I even wrote a, an article on my pipe blog a while back about it that has been one of the most linked articles on my blog um, about how to do commissions and people that you want to do commissions for and people that you don't want to do commissions for and the the drawbacks of the process. Um, how I do my best work is to sit down and take a block of briar and start shaping it and make the pipe match the grain and have it come out in a way that looks like it's the pipe that that block of briar really wanted to be. And that is not a process of work that adapts itself well to working with commissions. Um, because frequently I just, I literally have no idea what I'm going to make. Uh, and people are always asking me, do you have, do you think you're going to be making this or that in the next few weeks? And my answer is always, no, I have no idea. Um, it's going to depend on what block of briar I pick up and what sort of inspiration I have on that particular day. It's terrible from a, a business perspective, and I readily admit that, um, in not being able to say to a collector, yes, I'll, I'll have your uh, quarter-bent bulldog ready by the middle of next week. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am just very bad at it. I wrote, a, I actually wrote a self-parody article, a story on my blog about how I work, which was that I, uh, it was through my own eyes. I go to the workshop, I sit down with an order in front of me, and the person wants a pipe that's such and such and such and such and such particular size, et cetera. And so I pick out a block of briar and I start working. And I get into the work and I make something totally different than what the person asked for. But it's the pipe that I really like. And at the end of making the pipe that I really like, I sit down and I look at it and I'm quite happy with it. And I realize that it has nothing at all to do with what the guy ordered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is a rinse and repeat of my workshop life. I mean, that's just, that's essentially what it's like for me. Um, and that's why I'm so bad at doing commission work. If someone says, I want a large straight billiard with a bowl that's at least an inch and a half tall, that's the kind of commission that I can do reliably. Uh, but when someone says I would like something that's you know sort of sort of vaguely horn shaped and uh, I want it to look like some of this and some of this and some of this, I have a terrible time with that kind of kind of, kind of order because I um, basically I know at this point that I can do good work if I do something that I'm really into and I have a hard time interpreting what other people are are looking for. Yeah. Well, you're a visual artist and, and it's when you're, when you're taking dictation like that, it's kind of uh, counterintuitive really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, for instance, when I, every once in a while you'll get um, a commission for something that's extremely specific 
Uh, someone will give you a set of measurements of exactly how tall the bowl should be and how big the bowl chamber should be and how long the stem should be and whatever. Um, those guys, I just, I politely send them elsewhere. Um, that's just not me. That's not my style of working. And I'm not saying that they're wrong because it's their money and they have a right to get what they want. Uh, but there are other pipe makers that can do that and thrive on that kind of work. And I am not good at it. I'm not good at being a set of hands for someone else. I'm pretty pretty limited to doing what I myself like. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the old um, painting um, patron who asks for a, a couch-sized uh, painting. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh and you know they they want they might want to, oh well use this color and this color because then then it'll match my my carpet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just uh it just doesn't make any sense. So um we talked about Dave McKean, who are some of your other uh favorite visual artists? Uh Giger, of course, obviously. Yep. Um Salvador Dali, Bruegel, Bosch. Um, Illustration-wise, my favorites have always been Michael Whelan and uh, Frank Frazetta. Yeah. And Boris Folio, to a lesser extent, uh, I tended to like the wilder and more loose styles of Frazetta over Boris, um, which probably sounds ironic considering how tightly controlled Michael Whelan's painting and illustration work is, but I've always appreciated that aspect of his work. Um, but yeah, that's, that's safe you. Yeah, that's, that's some uh, good stuff there. Very good. How do you stamp your pipes and do you grade them? Yeah, uh, as confusingly as possible. <laughs> the basic goal of any grading system is to be as baffling as you can make it. <laughs> Because eventually you will have a collector who will be absolutely fascinated by all of the different grading systems that you have had, and they will memorize all of it, and it gives people things to argue about on forums. So that's the point of a grading system. <laughs> it gives people lots of things to do. Uh, yeah, I, I only say that half sarcastically. Um, but really, grading system creep is a thing that happens to pipe makers. And I've experienced it myself. I'm unfortunately intimately familiar with it. You start off with a very simple grading system, and then you discover that it doesn't really encompass all of the stuff that you do. So you add another stamp or another grade, and then you begin adding more to that. And then you stop and realize that you have way too complicated of a grading system. So you trash what you have and write a new grading system that seems to make more cohesive sense. And then you start adding to it again. And so it goes. Uh, at the moment, Linnea Britannia's uh, come with a standard Linnea Britannia stamp, and they are graded from one to five, which is as straightforward as I can make it. That starts at a rusticated pipe and ends up in an extremely nice, flawless smooth. Um, then there's a Linear Britannia Collector, which is a handmade pipe that essentially is a Talbert Briar second, uh, something that was going to be a Talbert, but for whatever reason, I didn't think that it was quite 
Talbert-esque enough and decided to make into an LB collector instead. Uh, so that's Lenny Britannia. And then there are the Talbert Briars, uh, which have the Talbert Briar stamping. And they too are graded from one to five in terms of, of quality. Um, above that, there's a Talbert Briar signature, which I reserve for really unusual projects. Uh, those tend to be things that can't really be covered in the standard grading pricing scale because they're usually very labor intensive. Like the last one that I did was a Morta and Meerschaum Calabash. Uh, it was a a piece of Somali and Meerschaum that I had got, which I shaped into the gourd of the Calabash section and hollowed it out and then made a Morta bowl cup to fit into the top of it and sandblasted the, the Meerschaum Calabash body. And that was way more work and, and um, labor than the standard Talbert pipes pricing grade would support, so it became a Talbert signature. And that's essentially what Talbert signature pipes are. And then there are the Halloween pipes, which are the top end of everything. Gotcha. Are there any pipes that after you've made that pipe, it's really hard to part with? Yeah, not many of them. Um, most of the time, it's it's a business. And as much as I like the pipe, at the end of the day, it's, it's that or pay the rent. So you sell the pipe. Um, over the years... I've had just a few that I really wanted to keep for myself. Um, oddly enough, some of them were pipes that I kept and smoked myself. Uh, for instance, I still uh, grouse because when I was moving to France, I had to sell out a lot of my collection, and I sold a bamboo shank pipe that I had made to Jeff Fowler, which I really wish that I had back now because... It was probably one of the three or four best smoking pipes that I'd ever smoked in my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few that you like, but most of them come and go. Yeah. What music do you enjoy? <laughs> uh, everything. Um, I have a big weakness for prog rock from the 70s. Uh, I have complete collections of Yes and Rush and Pink Floyd and um, so on. Um, also a big Jimmy Buffett fan. Um, also like heavy metal. Um, you are all over the place. Some country music. <laughs> I mean, on a given day, I may start off my day listening to several hours of Blue Oyster Cult and then switch to Jimmy Buffett and then listen to Alan Jackson for a little while and then come back around and listen to English folk music for the evening. Wow. So, yeah, it it varies widely. What is What does your pipe collection look like? Do you have a, a fairly large pipe collection? Not, not anymore. Um depending on how you define large, I guess I probably have looking around my study here now. Uh, I 
maybe 40 pipes, 40 or 50 pipes at the most probably. Um, and they're, it's eclectic. Uh, as with pretty much everything else that I do, there is no particular theme. If there is a theme, it is I try to have pipes in as many different types of pipe as I can. Um, I have corn cobs, I have mirrors, I have clays, I have briars, I have uh, gourd calabashes. Hi, cat. Hello. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Pippin. From Lord of the Rings. Of course. Uh, so having else? having said th- that you have all these different kinds of very um, – this kind of eclectic collection, um, you don't have a preference for straight or bent pipes, do you? Oh, no, not really, no. Uh, it's whatever I happen to be in the mood for. Um, I can absolutely horrify American pipe smokers all the time by – telling them that I'm a big fan of 9mm filter pipes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Amer- American pipe smokers are not supposed to smoke filter pipes. That's one of the big things on the forums. Oh, 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 no filters, why? Uh, but when I moved to France, that was they were widely available there and very popular, and I ended up getting uh, several Meerschaum 9mm filter pipes that I smoked and loved. Um I unfortunately am cursed with a, a sensitive tongue in the sense that a lot of things that are more acidic, particularly really, really bitey Virginia tobaccos, I have a hard time with. Mm-hmm. And I found that I could smoke them in a filter pipe. And suddenly my tobacco uh, vistas doubled and tripled because there were so many pipe, so many tobaccos that I found I could smoke and enjoy in a filter pipe that I could not smoke and enjoy unfiltered. Interesting. So at this point, I'm not, I'm not saying that filter pipes are better. I'm not saying that they're worse. I'm simply saying that they're another alternative. Yeah. And for me, it's simply a, a way to appreciate some tobaccos that I otherwise couldn't appreciate, um, as opposed to, you know, a, a big, a religious issue. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Do you have a favorite couple of pipes that you lean on more heavily than other ones? Yeah, um, probably the favorite one in my collection is one that I made. It's a, a Somalian Meerschaum sandblasted uh, 9mm filter pipe, again, that I made in France. Uh, it was the first time that I had tried sandblasting Meerschaum, and it has been the heaviest working pipe that I think I have ever owned. Um, I still smoke it regularly. It smokes fantastic, and it's... I have beaten the hell out of it, but it keeps right on going. Um, other than that, I've got some mirrors in regular rotation. Uh, there are a couple of clays that I always smoke a whole lot in October when I'm watching old horror films. <laughs> um, That's great. Well, it's you know if you're watching Bill Oligotsi's Dracula, you have to be smoking a clay pipe. It's difficult. <laughs> And i got to put in a word here because the, the clays that I'm talking about are by Gerard Prugnon. Uh He's a French clay pipe maker, and he does fantastically nice clays. We sold those in our shop in France for a while. Uh, he 
they're not the typical skinny sort of twelve dollar cavern clay tavern clays that you see in most shops. Mm-hmm. They're thick walled, real pipes. Uh, they're classical shapes. They're calabashes and they're billiards and whatnot with standard vulcanite or acrylic stems mounted in them, and there are not what you tend to think of as clays, uh, and they're just fantastic. I've got several of them in my collection right now and really like them. And I've got a Kirsten that I smoke a lot, too, that I got from uh, Linwood Hines at the, at the Richmond show a couple of years ago, which has been a lot of fun. It's a pain in the ass to clean, but it's, it's neat. It's interesting. And I'm working on an e-pipe design, uh, which I would like to make myself a, a reliable e-pipe if I can figure out how to make it work and do something that actually looks decent. Interesting. Tell me about that. What, the e-pipe? Yeah. Uh, well, I got interested in, in e-pipes and e-cigs, and they're fun. Uh, it's It's... An alternative, basically. It's something that I can easily carry around in my shirt pocket to smoke in places that you're not supposed to smoke tobacco and in places that I don't want to have to deal with the hassle of having a pipe and tobacco and tamping it and and all of that. Um, And there are e-pipes on the market, and they tend to be either very poor quality are horrendously ugly. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they don't tend to be attractive. The The whole e-cig market is a very strange thing because it's... A lot of the folks there are very concerned with nicotine delivery in a way that pipe people just generally aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will rarely see a group of pipe smokers sitting around talking about how much nicotine is in every particular tin of tobacco that they have. They're interested in the flavor. They're interested in the aging of it, uh, all of that. And a lot of the e-cig market views e-cigs primarily as nicotine delivery devices, and they look at them as they're perfectly happy to smoke out of a plastic battery case that's full of fluid uh, if it will get them their hit. So the e-pipes that are on the market have not really been made the ones that I've seen, and I apologize in advance if I'm uh, giving anyone a a bad, if I'm dismissing anyone or if there are any, any really good uh, artistic e-pipe makers out there that I don't know about, which there very well may be. But the ones that I have tended to see have not been what I would call attractive. Uh, and I would very much like to be able to make something that more accurately mirrors the enjoyment and the experience of smoking a tobacco pipe in an e-pipe form and also looks good. Do you have a uh, prototype yet? No, I've got some a lot of designs and I've got a lot of hardware. And I've put together some very crude mock-ups. Excellent. But haven't gotten anything to the point that I can really start hard testing it. Right. Okay. That sounds like uh, something to look forward to, though. Very cool. Hopefully, one day. What's your uh, favorite tobacco right now? Uh, probably still 1792. Uh, Samuel Galworth Black wrote 
XX is another big favorite of mine. Um, Samuel Galwith Bracken Flake. I'm just looking at what I've got on my desk right now. Um, Bracken Flake, I love. Samuel Galwith's Chocolate Flake is good. I don't like it as much as Bracken Flake. I'm just finishing out a tin of Dunhill Light Flake that a very nice fellow brought me. Um, and otherwise, uh, I've been getting some great tobacco from Pipe and Pint. Um, they just had a, an article in Pipe and Tobacco magazine about them where they interviewed Pete Pike, one of their uh, the local guys in the shop, mm-hmm. who started blending his own pipe tobaccos. And he's doing pressing of the tobaccos there in the shop. And God, he's got some good stuff. Excellent. Uh, he is... He's very anarchistic. <laughs> he is a cigar guy. And he has come to pipe tobacco with few of the preconceptions that tend to, to go into pipe tobacco blending. So he's perfectly happy to sit down with a handful of Virginia and three or four high-quality cigars and run them through the blender and chop them up and mix it all together and press it. And it sounds fairly crazy, um, but a lot of the stuff that he has produced has been fantastic. Um, I've been posting on my Facebook uh, page whenever these guys have a new batch of tobacco available. Unfortunately, their tobaccos are getting about like my pipes, which is to say that they produce a run of 25K squares, and they announce on Facebook, hi, we have new tobacco available, and within about the first 15 minutes, it's all gone. Wow. Yeah, I live down the street from them, and I can't get any of the stuff anymore. <laughs> if I want it, I have to specifically tell people that I want it to <laughs> save me. Right. So the next time that he presses it, he's got something that he is intermittently calling Dungeon um, or Pete's Apocalypse Blend or Pete's Madness, whatever. It's a really, really fantastic dark tobacco that is just, oh, my God, it's one of the best tobaccos I've ever had. And he doesn't make enough of it. So that's my preference. Excellent, excellent. When, you, when you're not making pipes, what do you like to do in your spare time? And I say that, you know, I know that you don't really have spare time, but let's just pretend like you do. Um, walking, going to parks, uh, going to work out at a local gym, watching movies. Avid movie watcher. If you're gonna, if you were gonna watch a movie tonight, what what kind of movie would it be? Would it would it would it definitely be a, a horror flick? Since you know we're we're in the Halloween season. Oh yeah, it's October. It's yeah, our movies every night. So when it's not October, what would it be? Uh, some odd flick. Um, Either one of the few TV series that we watch are probably still at least a 40% chance that it'll be a horror flick of some sort. Um, I, don't, I don't ever watch TV, so tell me tell me if I was going to watch some TV, what should I watch right now? What, what, or it, it doesn't have to even be on now, because um, God knows I haven't seen TV in forever, but um, and I'd like to. It's not because I don't want to watch TV, I just never ever get the time 
but uh, give me some examples of some good stuff that I would that I should tune into. American Horror Story is the first one that jumps to mind. All right, uh, it is a fantastic series. Each season is twelve or thirteen episodes long, and each season tells a completely contained story. So they're not bound by the usual conventions of television series, which is that they have to have the characters continue infinitely and no one can ever change, etc. Um, when you go into a season of American Horror Story, you have no idea what's going to happen. Anything can happen to any of the characters. You don't know who's going to be the heroes and who are going to be the, the bad villains. and You don't know who's going to survive. Um, it's a tremendously good show. Awesome. Okay, give me a give me a number two. Uh, well, I'll give you what my wife really enjoys watching, which is Downton Abbey, which is the I keep hearing about that episode of that. Um, but yeah. I love it too. It's a great show. It's, yeah, I have got to check that out. I keep hearing rave reviews. Yeah, it's sort of a, a drama slash comedy slash uh, historical perspective on life in a British manor house. Around the turn of World War Two, World War One, and what it was like as the life shifted from being built around manor houses to being built around a, a modern day economy, essentially. Tell me one thing about yourself that is something I would have never known, and maybe something that not many people know about. God. Um. <laughs> I've played through Sam and Max Hit the Road three times. Say again? I've played through Sam and Max Hit the Road three times. It's a LucasArts point-and-click adventure game from the mid-90s. Sam and Max. Yeah. Man, I, I don't know that one. I'm currently teaching myself to write text adventure games, which has got to be one of the most useless skills on the planet. Text adventure. So is this like choose your own, but it's but it's with somehow text messages. You're too young for text adventure games, aren't you? I, apparently so. Yeah. So I mean, I know choose your own adventure lines, but no. Throughout the '80s, uh, late '70s and '80s, text adventure games were the were computer adventure games. They were what you played on the computer. Um, they're textual stories. You have a paragraph of text and you have a cursor and you type in what you want to do and the text engine is able to interpret different actions and lead you through a story that you build yourself uh, so it's, it's it's not unlike choose your own adventure stories but it's it's through a computer interface that is text instead of graphic yeah interesting okay wow you can play these on modern computers. Uh, you, it's impossible to get people to play them today because they don't have graphics. Yeah. But essentially, it's an interactive novel, and they call it interactive fiction now in an attempt to uh, gussy up the term. But it's a text adventure game. Wow. One an example of a really good one. You can get um, an emulator, the name of which I can't remember, but there is an emulator for the iPad called Frotz, F-R-O-T-Z. Uh, that will play old text games, and there's a really good one called The Lurking Horror, which is a nice horror story. 
Excellent. So. Excellent. Oh. Right, I'm going to have to check this out now. This is totally new for me. Well, Zork. You have to know the name Zork. I don't know the name Zork. You're kidding me. No, no. <laughs> Maybe I was just very sheltered. I don't know. I was born in 72. I played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Good grief. Zork was the Call of Duty of the mid-1980s computer gaming world. I didn't do a whole lot of gaming, so maybe that's the problem. Mm, I don't know. Not in, at least not video gaming. Mm. Um, plenty of Dungeons and Dragons stuff. But. Yeah. All right, so um, let's see. I saw you in, I believe it was Richmond last year, but you're not going to be in Richmond this year. Nah, no time. Um, okay. If are you going to be at any of the other shows, either end of this year, Vegas, or next year, Chicago, anything like that? No, I generally don't do shows. Um, the There's just not really... For me, I'm a low-quantity low producing workshop. Mm-hmm. At any given time, the best I might be able to have is four or five pipes that I could take to a show. Yeah. That's not enough to sell at the show to make it worth going to the show as opposed to just sticking them on my website and selling them. Right, right. Uh, for me, going to shows is strictly a a cost thing, and it's basically a vacation thing, except the unfortunate side effect of it is that it's my business, so it's not a vacation. Right. So it's going to another city and spending a couple thousand dollars on the trip and essentially working the entire time. If you were going to give someone a list of six movies that they had to see before they die, what would those be? Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't have to be in any specific order. Okay. Uh, the 1963 Robert Wise version of The Haunting. Can I count all three Lord of the Rings movies as one movie? Yes. Okay. The Lord of the Rings movies, the first three. And I, I bet you're going to throw in The Natural because you already mentioned that. Oh. Uh, I think that would put me over six, actually. But, yeah, uh, that was that's definitely one of my favorites. Excalibur. Uh, True Grit. With John Wayne, the original. Unforgiven, the Western with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that was so good. I know, it's my... True Grit and Unforgiven are my two favorite Westerns, and they're diametric opposites, but I love them both. Bride of Frankenstein, James Well. I think I'm over six already, aren't I? One, two, three, four, five, that's six. Bride of Frankenstein, really? Certainly, yeah. Awesome. It's the template. I always loved the old Universal horror films. I've seen all of them. I grew up on them. I read about them in Famous Monsters magazine. I built the model kits when I was a kid. That's just, that's... Yeah, I used to get uh, Fangoria all the time. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing a a little necklace that they were advertising that was a little coffin that had... uh, Dust from a vampire's grave or something like that. <laughs> kinds of stuff like Man, that. Man, I, I wish I had that. <clears throat> so anyway, um, let's see. I was going to say something about Fangoria, but I can't remember what. Um, where can we 
purchase your amazing creations. Now, I know that obviously straight from your site, but go ahead and tell the, all the listeners out there what exactly your site is. Uh, Talbertpipes.com. And you also sell them locally at Pipe and Pint, right? Yeah, yeah, they do have some of my stuff there in stock. Um, I'm not exactly sure what he's got. He's bought a number of estate pipes of mine from different people over the years. And Larry is terrible about cataloging stuff. So he has pipes hidden behind the counter, essentially, that he's bought five years ago and has put into a corner somewhere and forgotten that he has. And it, there it sits today. I can't really even tell you what they have in stock. Uh, but I know they have <laughs> at least a small collection, small selection of my work. Now, do they do they have a online place where you can actually look or or not? They have a website, but it's not. Um, they don't have their inventory in terms of pipes online. I think they've got a few pipes that they put up online, but they really have a hard pursued uh, making a a working online pipe sales catalog. Yeah. Mostly they do in-shop stuff. Gotcha. Anywhere else that I should point folks to for your pipes? That's it. Awesome. Direct sales still primarily is probably 80% of the stuff that I sell. Wonderful. Good deal. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me today. It has been a real pleasure. I've been wanting to get this interview for years now, literally, and uh, it's. I'm glad we finally uh, we finally met up and, and we're able to do it, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Good deal. All right. We'll talk soon. Talk to you later. Take it easy. And that was my chat with legendary pipe maker Trevor Talbert. I suggest you work on attaining a bit of pipe history through the acquisition of a Talbert pipe just as soon as you can. Don't forget, this podcast was made possible by my friends over at PipesAndCigars.com. Have you signed up to get their email announcements? You really should do that. I really like the regular notifications that I get whenever they get some sort of new product or tobacco. I don't care what you're looking for. You're going to find it and love it over at PipesAndCigars.com. You cannot go wrong with their selection and service. Grab something today and let me know what you got. This is Oli for Oompal.com. Wishing you very good luck deciding which Trevor Talbert pipe will be next in your collection.